Welcome to the Behavior Grooves Podcast. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We have interesting conversations with insightful people about how to apply behavioral sciences to work and life. In this episode, we spoke with Linnea Gandhi. I have to tell you that she can sound very casual when she says she splits her time between advising companies and teaching MBA students, but don't let her casual tone fool you. Linnea is quite a remarkable person. She really is. After completing her undergraduate work at Harvard and an MBA at the Chicago Booth School, she went on to the Boston Consulting Group, then to Ideas42, and since last year, she's operated her own consultancy based on the application of behavioral sciences. Her focus goes beyond biases to the methodologies of scientific measurement that are critical to professional and personal decision-making. Yeah, I have to say, I've been looking forward to this conversation with Linnea. You Mm. know, during the past year and a half, she's really helped me understand some great ways of applying behavioral sciences in my own consultancy. When we caught up with her recently, she was busy preparing for a major presentation and was deep into reading a book on statistics. (laughs) Statistics? Deep into statistics, Tim, really. (laughs) It's pretty remarkable for a social psychology and philosophy major, I think. And she, she even waxed very poetically on a book called Success Equations, quoting lines from the book like it was Shakespeare. Whoa. She admitted to having a crush on statistics. Okay, way beyond me. <laughs> all right. And she's putting all of this work into the field to better study the fundamental aspects of how we calculate decision probabilities. Yeah, amazing. She's also one of that very special fraternity of people who have co-authored a paper with Nobel laureate Danny Kahneman. The paper she co-authored with Kahneman Andrew Rosenfield and Tom Blazer is called Noise, How to Overcome the High Hidden Cost of Inconsistent Decision-Making. It was published in the October 2016 Harvard Business Review, and it's a terrific piece. If you have not read it, go out, read it. It's It's fantastic. It shares the important lesson of how not to confuse biases with noise. You know, those things that we often refer to as chance variability. And Linnea calls that noise the invisible tax on profitability of corporations. The invisible tax on profitability. I love that. Yeah. We also talked about how humans are particularly challenged when it comes to grasping uncertainty mm. and developing concrete probabilities around difficult-to-identify risks. What's really cool is that she's putting it to work in her consulting business with clients that you know, innocuously re- overreact to new data or recent market changes. And you know, we've seen this many times over in our own practices. Kurt. Exactly. You know, when uh, a day before we're going to launch a pilot, a client discovers that one of their competitors has made a change, and now the client wants to pivot their own message too. It's like, <laughs> oh, my gosh. We were told that you're likely to find Linnea nose deep in a stack of books. True. Or in a lively conversation with clients or students. Very likely. Yeah. And we also discovered that you might just run into her at an improvisational theater like Second City or at a dance recital with friends. Yeah. We discovered that Linnea's connection to music is through movement, like dance, and leaves singing up to people with better vocal cords. Just like me, (laughs) that's what I do. I sit there and I just mouth watermelon, watermelon, watermelon. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we, we thoroughly enjoyed our conversation with Linnea Gandhi, and we hope you do too. Linnea Gandhi, welcome to the Behavioral Groups Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, we are so excited to have you. This is, this is so fun. How is the weather <laughs> in Chicago today? Just out of curiosity. Crappy. No. Crappy. <laughs> I was just no, I, I, uh, God, It's really not good. Sorry, yeah. go on. 
I was just down there Wednesday and uh, uh, it was nicer on Wednesday. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was sunny here today, but so. all things change. Okay, so we're gonna get started with a, with a quick <laughs> round here for you. Ready? Yeah. Michelangelo or Monet? Monet. Oh, she thought about that. Oh, mm -hmm. good. All right. Um, life without a mobile phone or life without your laptop? Life without a mobile phone. Oh. Fixed itinerary or no itinerary for your next travel? I would choose something in between. Oh. I would start with a fixed itinerary but have no sunk cost. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. No sunk cost. I like okay. that. The economic talking here. Yeah. Algorithm or human, which makes better decisions? Algorithm. <laughs> look, uh, no, look at this. Wow. You, that was faster than Michelangelo. It, yeah, you, you, you put more thought into, into uh, Michelangelo or Monet than yeah. you did about humans or algorithms. So, so there's, there's a reason behind that question. You've done some research in this. Um, so help us understand your reasoning behind that. What, what, why did you go so quickly to algorithm? Well, part of it is I'm, I'm, I, right before this podcast, I'm working, I was working on a presentation for tomorrow at a conference on that research. So it's <laughs> so drilled in my head. <laughs> um, but because with most decisions requiring, any decision that's just a computation can obviously be done by an algorithm. Mm -hmm. Any decision that more complex and requires judgment is likely best done by an algorithm because algorithms at the very least have 100% reliability. Okay. Meaning, even if you model a human's judgment, even if I, if I took you, you, you competing against an algorithm that models based on your historical judgment, that algorithm is probably going to do better than you because it's consistent. <laughs> by design. So merely by increasing reliability to 100%, I can also increase increase accuracy. Yeah, so so having uh having the algorithm uh lead the decision making process is is favorable in general. Is 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 that a fair thing to say? As a gross generalization, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Are there are there particular areas where you think algorithms are Absolutely, or maybe absolutely is too strong, but would, would have a strong preference that it would be much better for us to be using algorithms in some decision-making situations? And, and there might be other situations that we might favor human decision-making? An algorithm is useful when it is a computation. Okay. At the end, you have all the identified inputs and facts. You have a, a system for prioritizing those facts. That should, that's just a merely a computation. Okay. It's an exercise in putting things in Excel. Um, anything like that is should absolutely just be replaced by algorithms. When you so start to be, get, what would be an example? Oh, sorry, what would be a good example of of something like that? that? That's all computation. Yeah. What do I need to go behind the grocery store? Okay. Based in my historical consumption, I mean, I it's it's we we have all the data on what I purchased over the last several weeks, and what I tend to purchase week on week. Um, that probably could be done as a computation. Not that I recommend it because your tastes might change. And so that's probably not the best example. What about, what um, about auto insurance? 
Sure. I mean, or underwriting or claims adjusting to some extent that can really be done by an algorithm. But it's really the problem with the algorithm, the limitations is that it's only as good as it's been programmed and mm. it's only as good as the data you can put into it. And so I think the benefit of humans is that if the algorithm is imperfect, the human can look outside the algorithm to incorporate new information that just wasn't programmed in. But the problem with the human judgment is that when we look outside, we still may miss important inputs. We may find inputs that are completely irrelevant mm. and interpreting and combining those into an overall assessment and translating them to a scale requires so many steps in subjective judgment that often we will come up with different answers across time or between each other. Yeah. Does that make so sense? That, yeah, yeah. So that, that if you make the same decision with the same set of data as a human one day versus another day, you might get two very different responses where the algorithm is going yeah. to be giving you the that that same answer every time. Does that summarize yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, grading's a fun example. I have two TAs that grade papers with me. You know, okay. we'll have um hundred and eighty essays to grade, which is terrible and not fun at all. Uh if we're grading them, let's say on a scale of one to five, even if we fully agreed on what does a one through a five mean. I may be systematically more lenient than some of my TAs, or they may be more lenient than me. And so there's a bit of a lottery on who a, uh, who, um, a student is going to get between us. Right. And so at organization, for the, from a class's perspective, it looks like noise because it creates random variability based on who you get. But even on a certain day, if my puppy peed on the floor and I had to clean it up, that may cause me to be in a different mood or I just graded a phenomenal essay. So the next one I grade, I may think, oh, this isn't as good. And I may end up underweighting the score subconsciously based on ordering effects. So even yeah. within myself, there's a bit of a lottery that goes on as which linea do you get when? Mm. An algorithm doesn't have any of the interjudge problem or intrajudge problem. So there's no lottery between TAs. It's just one algorithm. And there's no lottery in with, with that grader, you know, whether it be me or my TA of how they're feeling and how they're grading or, or the algorithm doesn't change based on the last case it saw. Right. We do. Um, and so the, you had mentioned that the hard part of an algorithm is getting the algorithm right in the beginning. Right. And so what, what making sure that those, that you're getting the right inputs, but you're also rating those inputs in the, in the correct manner and providing mm -hmm. that component. Um, what, mm -hmm. if that isn't done, what are some of the, the potential downsides of that? And I'm, you had talked about noise and being biased on noise. And so I'm assuming it has, you know, some intention or unintentional biases or, or leanings, if that would be the case. Well, I mean, by definition, if an algorithm is reliable, then whatever pattern you program into it, if it's a, a, an, an algorithm, you'll see much more likely systematic bias. Okay. than you would in a human. Because a human has some of this random variation. If I'm systematically biased one way or the other, you may not see it because the noise mitigates the, the, how, how, much you, how much it stands out. What's great with an algorithm is if it is biased, you'll see it right away. Yeah. It's fixed and you need to go in and, and change it um, if you find that bias to be problematic. But there's no noise to swamp the, the noticing that it's biased systematically. Huh. So, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah that, it does. That's great. So I'm, I'm wondering about the application. Are you, uh, are you developing algorithms with clients to, to assist in their, um, their corporate environments with, with decision making? 
in some rare cases, yes, but more likely it's trying to turn man into a model rather than replacing man with model. So how can you use elements of structured judgment to facilitate uh, more consistent decision-making where it's warranted? Very cool. And so, so what are some of the, so, so what are you working on today besides that? That's one piece of it, but what are some of the other things? Cause you, yeah. you get to do some cool work. So. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel very fortunate um, to have a lot of different project areas I get, that I'm invited to work on. Um, I think the ones that I am most jazzed about are in this vein. Uh, so I work with a financial services firm that does trading and um, I work with some of the individuals there to improve decision-making around trading. Okay. I am not a trader. I no, don't show me a financial model. I won't understand anything about it, but what I work on with them is diagnosing trying to, to historically look backwards with hindsight and historically diagnose where there are potential patterns in poor decision-making processes okay. leading to poor trading outcomes. And then diagnosing that with some of the psychology that you guys um, and your listeners I'm sure are familiar with, you know, often it's very basic stuff around myopic loss aversion, inside outside view, um, gambler's fallacy, trading with the house money, all those sort of effects that can happen when you're trading. And then based on our diagnosis of what it is, redesign the environment, which could be something as simple as how someone's desk is laid out or which screens they have up or different timers and the alerts they have during the day to go get up and stop trading or even identifying, guess what? You know, after a certain point in the day, you stop making returns. Yeah. Stop just go it's sometimes doing nothing is as good as doing something or better really in terms yeah. of in terms of the losses you could make so those are really interesting projects to work on um i do other work on our research inside companies and how decision making processes are run within research so this could be around focus groups or interviews or it could be more quantitative like a longitudinal survey or even um, an experiment and how do you work, the question I try to answer is, how do you design that research with as much uh, rigor as possible, both looking at validity and reliability, um, and not just the research design, but the types of exercises you are doing as a team, particularly the business side, not just the data scientists, to say, are we aligned? Uh, do we know what we're testing? Uh, do we understand all the constraints around the test? Do we understand the business trade-offs that are linked to the underlying statistics? You know, you don't need to teach anybody statistics, but it, it can be really helpful to help, help people have everyday conversations around what does a false positive rate mean and what's your tolerance level for that. Translating that to units that are meaningful to them so that it's not just plugging and chugging with academic assumptions. It's actually assumptions that are, are, are rooted in the, the product or the service or the business that we care about. So, uh, so the, the whole idea of alignment is uh, in itself is a way of reducing noise, right? By, by, by making sure everybody is not just aligned with the objectives, but the execution uh, could uh, in itself be a way to reduce potential noise through the system. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that it's not that variability is a bad thing. Variability is awesome. We, evolution is based on variability. Uh -huh. um, but evolution has a selection mechanism. Like you can select out over time the poor 
poor decisions or poor instantiations. Same with trading. You know, you want variability in trading or else there would be no market. Right. It wouldn't work as a system. Um, but variability in how people are grading me, there's no corrective process for that. No variability in how applications are being reviewed at a university. There's no selection process, selective process going to get rid of the poor decision. So that variability is unwanted, unproductive, and that is where we would point to it and say, this is noise, and beyond a certain reasonable level of disagreement, because no one's perfect, it's unacceptable. Right. So, well, so how do you deal with that, uh, getting back to the grading 180 essays? Um, how, how do you deal with the, the potential vari variable outcomes? So trying to set up a grading environment where we have, uh, we try to avoid an impact from the prior one that we've graded. Okay. So if you, I mean, it doesn't really work as much as the 180 depending on the time you have, but ideally taking a break between essays so you're not influenced by the prior one inordinately on the next. Um, having really explicit criteria for what you're looking for in terms of attributes and setting that up well before you even read the essay. So I'm grading on clarity of writing, um, accuracy of utilization of the concepts in the class, and um, uh, I guess creativity in the sense of it's not just plugging and playing things you read in the, the textbook or things you saw in the lecture, but this is actually something different from your real world environment. And then I might create a scale around each of those three and define the points of the scale and maybe give an example. And I would do that with my other graders try to make the criteria very clear and the scale for each very clear. And I mean, if we were really being good about it, we would evaluate each of those attributes independently and try and avoid a halo effect from one to the other. I know, for instance, I am very susceptible to the halo effect of clarity of writing on everything else. Yeah. Reading a poorly written paper, I will be more likely, I know myself, to downgrade the content. Even if the content's probably worth at least a solid grade, it's if I have trouble understanding it, I mean, it's process influencing. Yeah. Uh, if I read something, it's hard to read. I am more likely to find it less credible and likable. Like that's our, that's our field, psychology. Uh, so trying to set it up where you're, you're actually evaluating each of these attributes separately, each essay separately. So this idea of, of segregating the judgment down and avoiding getting to that overall intuition too quickly. Mm. Because that overall intuition can be highly influenced by the first interactions you have or the prior things you had, and you really want to get to it at the end. Right. The last thing we would do is, is, again, make sure that we're translating to the same scale and have the same reference set across the three TAs. And we have different experiences in grading and, and, and different familiarities with what we should expect. All of that can be drivers of noise as well. Right. So the question is, you're probably left thinking, and I, you know, this is something we talk to my clients about a lot, is the ROI of doing this. Mm. You do not do this on every process. You just don't. You do it on processes where uh, you suspect or have found there is an unreasonable level of disagreement, and the price of remediating it uh, is lower than the, the benefit you're going to accrue from doing so. Some, I mean, the great, how much disagreement really do we have with my TAs and me? A yeah. little, it's not a ton. And the cost of it, oh, somebody got a 3.5 instead of a four, they're going to survive and live. And they're still going to get qualitative feedback that's going to help them improve. So right. should we go through that process and like really over-engineer it? No, maybe there are tweaks we should do, but we don't need to overhaul the whole thing. 
And that's because Same the cost mediate is too high. Yeah, I think all of these things, experimentation too, you know, that's a, a toolkit that more and more companies are wanting to bring in these days, which I applaud. But I have certainly been in situations with clients where we've had a very tough conversation of like, I love that they want to experiment. But if we really look at the cost politically, operationally, financially, uh, PR wise within the company of experimenting, those costs well outweigh what they're going to learn from the experiment we've outlined. And I got to like, they can pull the trigger, but I wouldn't advise it. There's yeah. an efficiency curve there. Well, it's interesting. We were out in San Francisco last week at a conference out there and they had the, the chief behavioral scientists from both Airbnb and Uber. And they're running experiments all the time because the platform, they're able to do those experiments on the platform. And then they, they, they started talking, we had some side conversations and it's much harder for them to, to do experiments running internally inside the organization to see how, how the process goes in order to try this process of how we're working as a, as a company to get things done versus this one. And they go, we would love to do it, but we just, there's too many hurdles to overcome. And I think today, particularly with a lot of the, the tech companies where you are able to run an A-B test or thousands of A-B tests for very little or no cost, uh, you know, that, that expectation that everything gets experimented uh, is out there. And, and to your point, it's just not a reality. Um, you can't always do that. And, and I love that you put politically inside some of those costs, because sometimes it's that political cost within leadership that they're just, they're not going to go for it, and nor should you necessarily. Do you think testing's on the increase in, in, corporate, in the corporate world? I think talk about testing is on the increase. I'm, and I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I don't mean that facetiously. I think it's great. I'm really glad it's the awareness of randomized controlled experiments is increasing in business parlance. Um, I think that actually doing tests outside of the digital space, right? So take those digital, yeah. the people whose products and services live in an online platform, setting those aside and looking at the majority of the rest of companies out there, I think more and more people are aware of it um, and are exploring it as a tool, but I think few people have cracked the nut on how to do it yeah. because of those costs that we, we discussed. Um, and I, that's, that is the area I like to play in. I, I think it's, I like to bring the scientific method for as much as I can in the companies, but help them think about it from a business perspective, not a science or academic perspective. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing. And, and so, you know, a lot of the, the decision-making, the algorithm component and, and research, um, at least Tim and I read your paper that you did with, with, with Kahneman on this, which is, you know, noise, how to overcome the high hidden costs of inconsistent decision-making. And so it's that applying that, you know, the scientific method into how we make decisions is, is kind of what I took as a, as a big kind of picture out of that of uh, what you can to, to help improve that. Is that, am I overstating that or simplifying it too much? No, I think, I, I think the thing with noise is, I don't think anyone's surprised to hear that we're unreliable. <laughs> I think where the well, surprise lies, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> where the surprise lies is that we talk so much about bias. Even when I talk with people about noise, 
people want to find the systematic causal pattern behind it. Oh. And, and, you know, their intuition is right at the individual level. And if I were omniscient, everything I'm talking about is driven by something, is systematic to a degree. But if I'm an organization, we'll say with a bunch of underwriters or claims adjusters or retail-facing employees, whomever it is that I see is interchangeable and I'm, I'm doing this study on, I'm not going to go in and figure out the level of which of each bias that each one has. You know, you're more susceptible to ordering effects and you're more susceptible to a halo effect and you just tend to be overly lenient. No, we, it would be impossible for an organization to go and diagnose all the different biases existing at the individual level and their interactions and their degrees. What the organization can do, however, is see how all those people moving in all different directions add up to unwanted variability. I can see that large standard deviation. And honestly, I can measure that without even knowing what the correct answer is. Yeah. I can see scatter on a target and remove the target and still see the scatter. Whereas if you see bias on a target, a cluster to the bottom left or upper right, but I remove the target, no clue if that's biased anymore or if it's actually accurate. So from an organizational perspective, someone is several layers up inside a firm and has a team, noise is a problem that we often miss because we like to talk about bias, but it's actually the thing that you can find and remediate more quickly, often, unless there's some big overwhelming bias that shifts everyone to one direction or another. Right. No, I, it's a great way of thinking about this because I think uh, you, you nailed it in that component of noise isn't the, the topic of conversation, right? The topic mm -hmm. of conversation is, well, what are we systematically doing in the wrong way as opposed to saying, we're doing a bunch of things in the wrong way, we're doing a bunch of things in the right way, but overall it's the scatter plot of various different things. We want to confine that scatter plot into a more targeted, accurate component. And so uh, an interesting thing that I read, um, I think it was from the, the behavioral site insight on, on what you're talking about. You brought up Kurt Lewin um, and, and talking about, you know, we try to change people, um, but, but we actually, it's easier sometimes to change the environment that people are in and more cost effective to yeah. change that environment. Um, which again, Kurt Lewin's one of my heroes. So I just uh, I think it's the same name. It's the same name thing, right? There's a there, there's probably some psychological component there. Uh, but you're such an easy play. I am. I am. It is really crazy. Um, but but help us understand. Just kind of thinking about that. Uh, you know, when you talk about removing or changing the environment, is sometimes often easier than trying to change that person. So. Do you want me to talk about it in general or in relation to noise? Just in or, general, if you, and then if we sure. want to apply it back into noise, we can do that. So I love that equation, too. I think Kurt Lewin is a man before his time. Yeah. Um, he died too young. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I love this. For in, I mean, I use it in most of my talks and most of my client engagements because it's such a, it's a very simple framework that represents at least my philosophy for how we bring behavioral science into business. Behavior is a function of the person in the environment. So every choice, every decision, everything we see people doing is a combination of who they are, uh, which brings up the psychology and the systematic patterns that we've been talking about, and the interaction of those patterns with the environment around them, environment broadly construed. It can be the physical environment, 
you know, is the candy on my counter or in the cupboard? Uh, It could be the digital environment, you know, how an email is written or when it arrives. Um, It it can be the words I verbally am using and the framing of those. It can be where my attention is visually drawn to and an advertisement. Those are all things around me and they're going to elicit a behavior or choice, a decision because of combining with with the psychology of who I am. And I think it's, it's inane for us to try to make people smarter, uh, give them more attention. They don't, we have limited attention. You know, we are limited attention. We're limited in awareness. We're limited in rationality. We're limited in self-control. That is, that is biologically or physiologically the way we've evolved and the way we're built. Um, I would rather accept that about people and make the environment designed to the way that people are built rather than beat my head against the wall saying this person's stupid. I need to get them to realize this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Um, and I think in, in companies, and I, I think there's a trend away from this now, but the traditional way was throw another compliance training at them, make everybody sit through this, you know, hour long workshop and not really thinking about maybe they're not doing the behavior you want because the in- environment engaging in that behavior isn't optimally designed for who they are. Yeah. Does that, does that make sense? It does. Totally. And, and totally. you know, we just heard Dan Ariely speak and, and one thing that he said, and I'm going to misquote this, but he said information in and of itself is a poor uh, predictor of behavior or poor uh, implement to change behavior. Um, it, it, which is exactly what you say. You, you, yeah, you can you can tell people what they need to do. You can give them all the information around it, but that in and of itself is not going to have the the behavior change impact that, as you said, yeah. in the environment. You who, who doesn't know that smoking is bad for your health? Right. I, I mean, I don't. Th- it's hard to imagine that there's anyone that doesn't that isn't aware of that information. Yeah. So it's not about information. Yeah. Yeah, or physicians washing their hands exactly. each time they go in and out of a surgery. Everybody knows this is the right thing to do. Yeah. Why don't they do it? There's a lot of different reasons, but I can probably design the environment to get them to do it better. Or honestly, something that you, all of your listeners would probably experience, there are good teachers and there are bad teachers. Yeah. They could be teaching the same content, but they can teach it in very different ways. So how is that content packaged visually? auditorially what kind of exercises do you do together I, all of that makes more of a difference in the information itself yeah and that's yeah. all that this framework is it's very simple but i think it's it's a way that we don't all if, if i think if people start at least for me when i live through the world thinking that way uh i think i just make way better design choices for the people i'm interacting with yeah that's cool i want to get back to kahneman I, okay. I'm, I'm just you know sure. i mean I've, let me just say that I've never had the opportunity to uh, to partner up with a Nobel Prize winner on a project, and I think it's pretty cool that we're talking with uh, with someone today with Linnea has partnered up with with Danny Kahneman. Uh, what was what was the experience like? What was what was it like writing that 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 paper on on noise? I've worked with him on a couple of different projects over the years. Okay. Um, client client projects, interfacing with you know in, in actual project management as well as this paper. And I'm, I'm just reflecting right now to think of that, that those interactions were different at all. Um, I think they were actually. So what's, what's, what's really, uh, what I'm, I guess what's really interesting about Danny is he's very smart. 
Yeah. He's very, very, very smart. That's not going to come as a surprise to anybody, your listeners or you included. Um, but he's also very humble. And I, I like his approach to collaboration, which, which took different forms based on whether we were doing client services and project management, you know, running actual projects together versus writing this paper or, or, or on the project, actually producing memos and content. Danny is very good about uh, recognizing and lifting up the expertise of people around him. So when we were on, when we worked on this project together, it was always, it always felt so good because, you know, he carved out, he's like, Linnea, this is your, you are the expert at this piece, at this client services piece. Like you manage the relationship, you do it. I trust your judgment. You know, and then there were domains where we were like, all right, the psychology, yeah, that's Danny. So <laughs> maybe I write a draft. I write a draft of something, and the agreement is no sunk costs. Yeah. So I'll write it. And my, my favorite feedback for him ever was I spent all night once writing this big draft of a memo, um, two or three pages. And really, I tried to wear Danny's voice. You know, okay. He makes these bold, concise, these statements, he squeezed all the muck out of them. So the essence is just there. So, I mean, I, I literally spent all night trying to be Danny writing this. And I sent it to him. And he sends me a note like a day later with the new version attached. Um, and we don't look at things in track changes as a rule. Okay. We just look at the new version. And it's like entirely changed. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, he goes, Linnea, that was amazing. I, I hated what you wrote so much. It clarified my thinking and what I had what I had gotten wrong, you know, yesterday in talking to you. And I was like, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know? <laughs> no, no, but oh, um, I love that story. It, it's it's what is great though, you so you work with him. He's super smart. He's super critical of his own work and your work. Um and he has no sunk cost for even himself. So you'll see him, what I just told you about me, he'll do his own draft and he'll right. stay up all night. So he's working on a, pro a book project on noise right now that I'm project managing with him and Cass Sunstein and Louis Siboni and a McKinsey, an ex-McKinsey partner now at INSEAD. And just to watch the way they write together. And he's so, he's very respectful that these guys have different expertise and the way that they critique each other's work and build on each other's work. It's just very clear that Danny's very smart, but he's also very humble and 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 very quick to say he doesn't know, probably yeah. to a fault, um, because you'll just see these revisions after revisions after revisions after getting to that essence of a message and essence of the truth. Um, being in that process is very painful. Yeah, because it's it's such a high standard. It's very it, it can be really hard, but you know at the end of the day the output's gonna be great. So the, honestly, writing the paper was was similar to that. Any yeah. output Danny's involved with, he's gonna put it through the ringer, and, and it's gonna be your work he puts through the ringer and his work. Um, and so it's it's really it's for me it's always, it's a lesson in concision, which I am naturally not concise, yeah. and a lesson in what really needs to be said, what is the truth. Don't satisfy when it comes to to the thoughts that you're putting out there and the ideas you're putting out there. You cannot satisfy. Well, and you, you mentioned this whole idea of not having sunk costs, and yet you, we know that that memo that you spent all night writing 
right? I mean, uh, and then the next day, like, there's, there's, there's part of you that goes, yeah, you're rationally going, yeah, I know, I get it, but there's that heart, yeah. right? You wanted it to be just so perfect, so. You forget, I've not worked with them for a few years, so on and off, and that, that starts to get you, it's like, okay, I know, I'm, I know what I'm getting into. Yeah. I, I, I now send things saying, here you go, rip it apart. Yeah. And I'm always, I'm like very pleasantly surprised when I get back, oh, this is great. I'm like, no, this, no, <laughs> you didn't just say that. What? So now you're um, actually doing it to yourself then. You're going, wait, I got to look at this. No, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, but usually, yeah, you, my PowerPoint slides is less critical of because I think that's my domain. Okay. Uh, okay. Writing and prose, that's his, I mean, that is his bailiwick. He is such a, he's a very, I mean, you've all read Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. It's the book that everyone buys and no one reads because it's so packed with, it's so densely packed with knowledge. I think people don't get, don't have the patience to make it all the way through. They should. Yeah. It's yeah. so, like, there's wisdom packed in there, but he's been so precise with the language that you cannot be a lazy reader. Well, and it's one, so, so we just did a top 10 behavioral science books between Tim and me, and that was actually put outside of it in one of the classics. We said, we're not even, we're, there are four or five classics, that's just a classic. Yeah. That's like the pre, pre you know, you got to do that. Just get off you. your lazy ass and read it. And, and the thing that's, is, that's with, all we could say. with that book too, that I found is, um, I've gone through it twice now, and I, and I need to go through it a third time, because to your point, Every sentence, like you, you know, the next paragraph is like a whole new nugget, and then they get a whole new nugget after that, and you do, you skip over that, or you don't realize it in that yeah. first read, or it becomes so, to your point, so heavy that I just, oh, there's too much here, I can't finish this. You need to finish it, and then you need to go back into it, and then, then cherry pick. Just go and uh, you know, I've done this in some of the books where you just open up to a chapter and you start at chapter twelve. And you start going through after you've read it and you kind of go, oh, now you're seeing it fresh and you're seeing it in a new perspective and you, you get some insights on that. So, yeah. yeah. The other thing I want to mention, I'm, you're making me think of, um, that I've, this year has surprised me as I've been, you know, helping and watching him write this awesome book with Cass and Olivier, is he's, he's, uh, he's not afraid of the data and statistics. In fact, I think his original training was in statistics. So we'll get like an email at 3 a.m. where he's like, I just worked out the mathematics of, of like I've just derived, and that doesn't deserve, or he, he's like, the thing we've been talking about, I just realized it's this basic statistical principle of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I, I don't know how you, he's like working out all this Gaussian mathematics. He's like, the reader must understand this. It's so important, which he's right at, but you know no one will read it. Yeah. And he knows no one will read it, but he's like, it's so important. Um, it's, it's, I just, you just forget it's, it's, you know, versus someone who has achieved so much in their career and might have an analyst do something or, you know, he was, he, you know, he, we had a call with a statistician the other day. It's not that he believes he's an expert in everything, but he's, he's so good at just diving in the weeds to get the relevant information and then pulling back up and incorporating it. It's fantastic. Well, and you said he's, he's a super smart guy. And so, you yeah. know, that, that part, and, and what, I, what I just heard you say, though, is like, he's not just applying the statistics, he's taking those statistics and saying, this is how we interpret this component of it, and this is how this, as you said, we, everybody needs to understand the Gaussian, you know, mathematics around this, and, 
a simple statistician may not, you know, they could run all those numbers, but they're not going to put those correlations together like he is. And so uh, that's why he is who he is, right? I so, so. Yeah. yeah, I think, I think so. He's very smart and he's got a, but the process of getting to his output is painful for, <laughs> especially for him. You know, he loses sleep over it. He, he doubts himself. That's not, it's not, that's, you know, that's not a surprise. You've you read about that in Michael Lewis's book. Um, yeah. But I think it's to, a, it's to a greater cause. And I think he's very good about making sure that despite, despite the, I don't think pain is too strong. Of Besides, despite that, that process can sometimes put you through the ringer. He never wants it to undermine his relationship with his collaborators. Oh, that's really neat. Um, yeah. So I think that's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, and you, you brought up Michael Lewis's book. And, you know, the piece that really stuck out for me from that book was, you know, when his, when he was partnering up with Amos and, and Tversky and, and they talked about, they'd go into the, into a, a room and there would just be laughter in that room. And, you know, this, this oh, element yeah. of floating yeah. out of that. That was so vivid. And you just, yeah. you, you can see that from what you're talking about. Yeah, they, they, they held each other to this, you know, standard, but they also, you know, respected each other and had fun. And, and it sounds that yeah. same way is what you're, you, you're saying, that humbleness and that, that component. So fantastic. Um, I, I want, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about thinking in probabilities, right? Sure. And because uh, uh, you're, you're kind of a fan of, uh, of Annie Duke, and we uh, recently interviewed Annie, and we're big fans of thinking in probabilities, at least 82% at least of the time. 76 for <laughs> 94 for me. So, so, um, so how are you incorporating thinking in probabilities into, into your practice? Thank you for that question. Great tee up. Um, I'm, I, I am I'm incorporating it more and more because I find that at the end of the day, all these business problems, they're all about uncertainty. They're all about dealing with uncertainty. Um, but we all know as humans, we're shitty at dealing with uncertainty. We don't think about it. We don't like uncertainty generally, and we're not good at grasping uncertainty and mapping into concrete probabilities around, you know, risk or, or even what the different outcomes could be. So it's, it's creeping more and more into to what I do. Um, and I, I'm trying to use it, for instance, in the research process, okay. uh, when companies are conducting whatever research it might be that they're conducting, broadly construed, how do I help those teams Bayesian update? Often people are overreacting to the latest new data point or something yeah. from the market or a focus group that just happened, and they're ignoring the base rate, you know, or their a priori um, beliefs of what strategy to go with end up being washed out by the vividness and salience of the new data that they just got. So how do you help people update in a more Bayesian way where they're appropriately weighting um, their prior information and the current information that's coming in and and doing it in a way that's not, you know, how heavy handed process. So thinking about that kind of thing or when we're running experiments, especially thinking about things in terms of probabilities, um, how do they understand probabilities of false positives and false negatives? How do they understand that just because we're running this doesn't mean we're actually proving anything? Right. Um, we're just reducing, depending on the outcome, we're reducing the uncertainty around X being true or not. Um, or some of the work I'm doing, I'm, I'm looking into 
and maybe doing some supply chain work in the future. And with supply chain, when you have logistics and transportation, everything's probabilistic at the very least because the ecological uncertainty uh, in, in the world around you, let alone the uncertainty in whether the driver's going to get there on time because they've been sleeping or uh, whether the person putting the goods on the truck is going to do it on time because of other things happening on the good standpoint or whether if I give you a, a prediction that I need you to ship 10 items a week, if that's an average, yeah. that may mean some weeks I need all 10 to happen on Monday. That may mean some weeks I actually need 15 or five. And is the, is it, am I writing my contracts thinking not just about the mean, but the variability and matching with people who can transport these things and can handle that variability? Or do I not care if they can't handle it? Because for me, uh, like if I think about my priorities and the probabilities I care about, on time isn't as important to me. Or is, or is it? So thinking about all the different probabilities of the outcomes I care about in this transportation ecosystem and all the different uncertainties I can control and can't control. And how do you write that into a contract? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so people don't get pissed off. How do I price that? Um, how do I allocate that across geographies? Because it's not like I just have going from point A to point B. I might have a thousand different origins and destinations across the U.S. So I, I think that's, that transportation is a great way to think about it because it's so concrete. But you can imagine that with anything in business environment. There's all these different uh, areas where uncertainty creeps in. But we, we tend to think about things binary. Yeah. Zero or one. Did it happen? Did not happen? Um, and if we can get people to think more probabilistically, I think they'll do better planning. Um, and they'll also just be less upset when things go wrong because they'll think about it more as a process. Yeah. I think that you, it's what Annie Duke kind of talks about in her book and, and in the podcast is like, we tend to gravitate towards that 100% or 0%. And, and then we get weighted in and then it becomes this yeah. self-identity thing when it, isn't, when, when it doesn't happen that way. And then you, you, you double down on your former beliefs even when the information that's being presented to you is saying, this is a more accurate viewpoint of the world, yeah, but we, we tend to not do that. But, but if you start thinking in probabilities, well, I, yeah, it's 80% chance that that's going to happen. Well, now it didn't show up. And to your point, yeah, it's not saying it's this is now 100%. But we're saying, yeah, now I can readjust my 80%. It's probably more 70 or maybe 65% or even whatever. And yeah. so the next time I do it, I'm going to have a more accurate perspective of the world. And that's going to lead to better results uh, for everybody to you know, and I loved your idea, the, the yeah. transportation component, because again, yeah, that's you example. multiply that by all of the different touch points where that happens. And, it, you know, it just, that's massive. So it's complex, right? I mean, it's not easy. It, it's, it's complex, but it's certainly worth the rigor. You, you know, you also wrote about uh, the taxonomy of failures, you know, and, and you, you talked yeah. about all the outcomes. And I, and I love this idea of, of saying, okay, there's, there are, when it comes to outcomes, it's just, it's just, it can be very easy to just say it's a win or a loss. But when you look at processes, there's a whole bunch of ways of, of evaluating those processes. And I think that, that the, you know, thinking in probabilities is much, is super applicable yeah. in that environment. But the, the thing is, and I'm, this is a work in progress for me, because I'm, I'm shifting more and more what I think and write about around this, is how do you get people to do it? We do not live life thinking about the counterfactual. We don't live life thinking 
no, I could have been in, like, the same thing with noise. It's impossible. Unlike all the biases that we read about in these books, it's very easy to imagine ourselves having biases and remembering instances of them. Nobody remembers being noisy because it requires remembering being in a counterfactual state of the world, which is the same thing with probabilistic thinking, saying, well, 20% of the time, the world will be different. Yeah. And then 80% will be the same. So I'm balancing these two worlds in my head or, you know, many other worlds if it's not just two binary conditions. I, it's impossible to experience that in a lived way. So getting people to think that way is super challenging as, yeah. as valuable as it is. And that, that's kind of my, my uh, holy grail that I'm currently <sighs> aiming for is how can I level up human thinking yeah. To get people to be more probabilistic, um, you know, borrowing from Annie Duke's great work or Michael Mobusan. I love his book on the success equation. Okay. Have you read, have you read that book? It's amazing. No. Um, he's, and he's, he's phenomenal too, marrying the psychology with different examples in finance and sports, but he talks about different activities have more or less luck or skill involved and, mm -hmm. and, and uses some probabilistic thinking strategies to get you to understand that. Um, and, and visual cues. It's, it's, it's very, it was very helpful for me. Okay. Um, so borrowing from authors like that and helping businesses and business people make better decisions because we can level them up to think more probabilistically. And does this come around to the first part of our conversation and the work with algorithms as well in using those to help in, in giving people some of that, again, taking some of that, uh, noise and and variability out of it is that does that play into thinking this way or, or is that a whole just a separate component in your mind well i would i would certainly think of them as related because reliability is inherently a statistical concept yeah so i want to level up your thinking i'd like you to think more reliably um probabilistic thinking for me is more around thinking about the different outcomes Got it. um can i get you to reliably think more probabilistically I love that. <laughs> <laughs> there you um, go. There you go. But like we said, they're both rooted in statistics. And, you know, I wish I could go back to college or grad school and just study stats. I feel like all of the psychology that I immerse myself in today and all the problems that I love, I'm coming more and more towards statistics and the psychology of processing statistics more than you know, the marketing or persuasion content, which while valuable, is it's just not that interesting to me. This is interesting, the intersection of stats and psych. Um, and I'm, I think every day I'm aware more and more of how much I don't know in that field and how valuable it is. So I, I kind of just want to spend all day reading statistics at this point. <laughs> you are, uh, it sounds really dorky. Yeah, yeah, it always does. I was, <laughs> was going to say that you are probably within a handful of people in the world that would have ever stated that. <laughs> you know, so that's good. I, I know Tim is jonesing to talk about yes. music. So uh, oh, go. this is Tim's part of the, of the podcast. I always just defer to the musician. Go. Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just always just interested in just talking about music. What uh, you live in Chicago, lots of great music, live music going on there. Do you, uh, what, you know, do you have any favorite haunts? Do you like to, do you, do you like to go to uh, live music events? Tim, I'm going to massively disappoint you. No! The answer is no. <laughs> but I'm an improviser, so I've. We can certainly talk about music 
my passions though are more physical. I like dance, improv, you know, the more multifaceted, uh, I'm not, not that music is not multifaceted. I don't mean to say that, but that's more of the realm I play in. You know, part of the reason, Tim, why I hate music, I don't hate music, but I don't appreciate it well enough, is I am tone deaf. I'm not allowed to sing in my household because I, I don't even realize I'm changing key. Um, so it's never, it's just, I'm not a good musician. I'm really shitty. I mean, take me to karaoke and it's embarrassing. I can kind of rap, but that doesn't require carrying a tune. Yeah, okay, my, well, not my, yourself. Uh, we, when we're in Chicago, we aren't going to go to, we won't do karaoke. We, well, we'll skip. It, it's <clears throat> funny because when I, I have been banned from singing in my house as well. My kids <laughs> up and they're like, going, that is not, you are just off. And I'm going, no, I wasn't. I was parked. No, you were. Off. I know. And they're eight and 12. I like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dog just like cocked her head. He's pretty talented. And my, my husband, of course, was an acapella singer oh. in college. Like, did a world tour and everything. So oh. I'm definitely banned in my household. I'm like, she's like, just don't sing. Just stop. And I'm like, but I'm, it's like, I'll do, I love Billy Joel's for the longest time. I love that song. Um, I could belt it all the time, but I'm really not allowed to. Like, it's like, it's painful <laughs> for people around me. But you're using music, I mean, dance not doesn't require i mean i you know i think about more modern palabolas and you know there's plenty of dance troops that do not rely on music per se but but do you do you feel like music and dance are you know so are closely tied oh yeah so i should say it's not that i'm not a fan of music it's really that i'm not allowed to make music um (laughs) and i i actually i actually signed and i don't know if you guys have this but especially with the art or probably with anything I appreciate consuming it more if I have been a producer. Oh. I think I, I see and I hear and I pick up more. The, the experience of consumption is much more rich. So with improv, when I would watch a show prior to having taken three years of it and then after, I see much more and enjoy it in a, a different level now. Music, I've just, unfortunately, because I suck at it, I've never really been able to, I, enjoy, I definitely enjoy listening, but I've never, I know I don't appreciate it the way my husband does. That's interesting. He hears so much more than I do. Yeah, it's interesting that, that you find more enjoyment, the better that you get to know something. Because I think sometimes for myself is when I get into it, I find that I enjoy it less because now I'm focusing in on the, like, oh, they did that wrong. Or, or you know, I'm, I'm critiquing it more than just, it being in the experience, which, you know, there, I think there's, there's value in both and you can probably look at things differently in that, but it, sometimes I just want to just, I don't want to critique it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to really, I just want to let my mind go. And like you said, you know, second city or, you know, improv, I'm, I would be scared to go and do improv because I love improv, but to your point, I might actually appreciate it more, but I, my fear is that I would be, oh yeah, they did that. I would have done this. Oh, this yeah. way you know so just go watch good improv that's what i do i don't watch bad improv i would never watch me i'm a terror <laughs> you would never want to watch i would never watch my own show it's too bad but i will like like if i look for the highest mean lowest variant shows in the city so like improvised shakespeare yeah. super high mean super low variance it's like you know when you go i've seen like two bad ones and i've seen maybe like 50 that yeah. is rare for improv. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. Like, I think I actually agree with you. I just, 
decided I'm only going to see ones that are good. So I'm not go. criticizing. I'm like, oh, shit, they did that. Whoa, they pimped each other. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, I, you know, I can appreciate it and it's good. There you go. <laughs> I, and I have to say, you are probably the only person, again, or a handful of people in the world that ever have said, I go to see, you know, improv shows by their, their you know, variability in their, uh, the statistical mindset of, like, yeah. how you pick. There you go. That's, <laughs> right. uh, That's pretty great. It's wonderful. Okay. Well, I'm a wannabe statistician. That's what it is. I know. I guess so. There you I go. Guess so. so get up. Too bad. God damn it, start reading those statistical books. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, There's a great book that I'm reading called, um, oh, let me get the exact title for you. It's Statistics as Principled Argument by Abelson. It's like, um, it's, it's, it's so, it's amazing. There, there are, people are going to love it or hate it. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I'm writing quotes in the back that he says, like, um, we must resist the temptation to claim systematic systematicity unless chance explanation is insufficient. Oh. I mean, doesn't like isn't that amazing? Are you swooning? Like yeah. Oh, listen, listen. Um, a null hypothesis test is a ritualized exercise of devil's advocacy. <laughs> All right. For for isn't I mean, like I read this and I'm like, this is amazing. You're our, listening. Test, our causal claims can be crisper. Like it's just the phrases are amazing in this book. So, so you're I'm just hugging the book right now. We're actually seeing video of Une right now, <laughs> and she is like in full. I love this book. Of this is great. I think I think I, I have a crush on statistics. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> it's bad. So you have a stats crush, huh? Huge. I have a statistician who works for my company and like, you know, on and off. And um, my husband knows about this, so it's fine. But when my colleague and I are talking with him and getting his advice on stuff, we're like, oh my God, Julian, say that again. Oh, that was amazing. We're like writing it down. Like he's, he talks like this guy. Um, and not every statistician's like this. I feel very fortunate to found some amazing authors and friends. Uh, but I think if you a good statistician is worth like ten psychologists. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, all right. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> well, I think I think on, on that note, three tips. We have to ask the three tips question. So, uh, if you were to give our listeners two or three tips, we'll we'll two or three tips here of of ways that they can improve either their thinking how they show up at work, how they show up in life. Um, what would those three tips be? Look for disconfirming information. Okay. Love it. An oh, easy way to do that is if you have a question and you're typing into Google before you hit search, reread the way you phrase that question. Okay. Are you looking for answers to confirm or disconfirm? Example being, I did an ice bath the other week. My friend is getting into all different alternative therapies. So I was like, all right, I will go dip myself into a bucket of ice. But I was worried it might be bad. So I Googled, are ice baths dangerous? Oh. What kind of hits do you think I get from that? I get ones that confirm that point of view. Versus if I said, are ice baths safe? So maybe do both. So tips to listeners would be, if you really want to learn, test you know, whether you're confirming or disconfirming your starting point of view. Okay. Because we all, we all, that's a big one, I think. Um, Love, that. Love it. 
Okay, number two. I think number two, uh, if you don't write it down, it doesn't exist. I like it. I've stolen that phrase from Professor Linda Ginzel uh, at Chicago Booth. She um, has a book on leadership that literally just came out. So if you like that phrase, check out her new book. Um, but I really like it because it. Sorry. What's and and Lunia? What's her What's her new book? Um, I it's got. I don't know that the it also have to Linda Ginzel. I want to make sure I get it completely right. I believe it's on leadership capital. Um, okay. We'll look it up later. Look it up for your but, but it, it it just came out literally yesterday. Um right. so she's what I like about that phrase though, if you don't write it down, it doesn't exist, is it helps combat hindsight bias, it helps combat uh ignoring base rates, it yep. helps combat even I mean a lot of these biases we have around statistical thinking come from not having data. Yeah. If you don't collect the data, you won't have the data. So collect the data, write things down, track things over time. Um, and I think the third thing would be uh, take a statistics course. <laughs> and fall in love. Yeah. And fall in love. Oh, that's great. <laughs> wow. I don't, I, I tell you, I'm, I have to tell you, I'm going to have a hard time falling in love with statistics. I, I just don't think it's going to be a natural romance for me. <laughs> She's cradling her book. Yeah. Just I'm like, telling you. It's amazing. You're missing so much. I mean, I, I could read you more. I mean, he, he's, the p-value attaching to a t-test may be something insipid, like p equals, I mean, the, the language in this is amazing. Well, I was just going to say that, that, you know, when you're talking p-tests and t-tests and using the word insipid right there, it, I think I want to get that it's book great. to read for the, the language that he's using around statistics. Okay, so, so Ableton's got it on us. So all right. We've, we've, we've got that. Yeah. Linnea, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much thank fun. Thank you. Yeah. We really enjoyed this. And, um, and we look Ditto. forward to you sometime uh, when we're in Chicago. Yeah, I'd love that. I will try to arrange for better weather. <laughs> we appreciate that. Thank you. But we're from Minnesota, yeah. so most of the time your weather low is... Low expectations. Yeah, low expectations. There you go. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our behavioral groups interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our foggy brains this early morning. Yes, it is an <laughs> early morning. Yeah, so we... Uh, Fortunately, we, we have sunshine beaming in on us. We, we do, and we are in the... Uh, uh, Studio behavioral B. grooves east, right? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, right. And, and looking out at a beautiful setting of birds on bird feeders and a beautiful morning. So, yeah. All right. So, Tim, what do we want to talk about for with Linnea? She brought up a lot of great points. Oh, she had so much. But yeah. what, what were the key things, takeaways for you? Noise versus bias. Oh, my God. Right? Yeah. When... It what really struck me was when she said, you know, it's easy to identify the biases. Right. Like, we can get to the biases pretty quickly. We, you know, you, you develop a skill set in that. It's like, yeah, I can see those. But the noise, identifying the noise is is much harder. Well, and I think it has a bigger impact. I think and that was the, the article, the, the 2016 article in Harvard Business Review, was talking yeah. about the impact that that noise has on 
all of our decisions, right? The decisions where we, whether it be business, personal, whatever. And I loved the little diagrams that they had in that. So again, oh, if yeah. you have not read this, there's, there's differences in how they look at this. So you picture a target. And if you like were shooting at a target with arrows or bullets, whatever it would be, and if everything is grouped around the center of the target, well, that's accurate. That's that's an accurate description of, of, of how things go. Right. But and then you can be biased. Biases your your shots are all grouped. They're all they're all pretty tightly together, but they're not be, near be, the center, right? right. They're because, off because they are a bias. There are right. there are specific biases. So yeah, they would be grouped. They're they're, right? they're grouped, and so but they they're off to the side, or they might be you know if they're really some of the bigger biases it would be way off, maybe even <laughs> off the target, right? So you kind of <laughs> right. think about that. Right. Then there's noise, and noise is just this almost scatter plot of of components around the target where there's no it, it's not clustered. It all hits the target, but it's all kind of all over the target. In fact, if you remove the target, it makes no sense at all. Right. Without the target, you have you have no idea really what's going on. And so that noise, and particularly if if you have if you're thinking about this from from decision making and various different things, that noise adds this whole confusion as to which one which is the accurate component. What is right? How do you get to making a good decision on pieces? Because you don't really have the information to be able to do that. And we make assumptions based on that that information. And yeah. so therefore we might assume that these pieces over here are uh, you know this whole component and various different elements. So it's so it, it, one of the things that really strikes me is that, and we've had this conversation uh, several times recently about challenging decisions, like making difficult decisions. Again, thinking future, thinking uh, high risk. I'm thinking like healthcare. Right. Healthcare is a complex. Deciding what healthcare plan to go with is a complex decision. Uh, we just I just had to re-sign up on my healthcare too. That was, ah. And, and you do it once a year Yeah. at best. I mean, I, ideally you do it. I mean, I, I look at healthcare as something, all I want to do is get in, sign up and hope that I don't have to make that decision again forever <laughs> for the rest of my friggin' life. I don't want to make that decision. Oh, no kidding. But, but of course we do. Right. right? So the thing that, that is, is so great about our discussion with Linnea is that she reminds us algorithms could do better. Yes. Algorithms could help us because there's a lot of noise. We are influenced by a lot of things. There's a lot of bias. There's a lot of there's just a lot of noise, a lot of confusing things that that uh, that make these decisions particularly difficult. And an algorithm could actually help us. Right. And so in using that health decision component, right, as, as an example, what are the factors, you know, what, what are those important factors to you? And and so does the doctors that are in the the network matter price matters uh, the uh you know do you have coverage do you, have you matter yeah. children not children there's a whole number of factors that go into the decision making and the information that we have about any one of those can be can be accurate and can be you know helpful or it can just create additional noise in that whole decision making process right algorithms by looking at them and being able to take uh, a focus of being able to say, all right, let's look at the important things for you, building that algorithm, even if we don't actually build an algorithm, if we go through that process, because sometimes we get caught up in our own emotional component. Well, yeah, I want, I want to make sure I have my doctor Absolutely. in there. And is does that outweigh 
the amount of cost that gets associated with that or the yeah. types of coverage or various other factors that go into it. And so you have to weigh all of these factors and it just leads to this really difficult decision. Well, George Lowenstein and Sarah Bargava actually wrote a paper on how we get influenced by the color and the names of the plans. Like if, like if, if, if the insurance provider puts, you know, colors on, on, you know, plan A, plan B, that that influences how we decide. And then if they call it the gold or the silver or the, that influences whether or not it's actually good for us. Well, it's framing, right? We've <laughs> right. talked about framing a bunch. <laughs> right. and so framing influences how our brains then process that information. So yes, and, and if that is accurate for us or inaccurate for us is an important piece. That's right. It could just be noise. It could just be noise. Very um, cool. Yeah. Okay. How about you, Kurt? What uh, what really what what caught your attention in our uh, our discussion with Linnea? So we go back to testing, right? Oh yeah. Testing, <laughs> test, test, test. Uh, and I think it's an important piece, right? And particularly within organizations and organizations not wanting to necessarily go through and do tests, particularly when those tests can be difficult to do. We've talked about this multiple times. Yeah, it's hard. Uh, and yet, I think I think she said something along the lines of, uh, it's just just start, you know? There, there was still sort of this this um, this mentality of just tr just start, just do something. Try something. Just try something. Uh, and, th and then you can refine. And, and I thought that that's an important element for us to to recall to re, to keep in mind especially for the junior behavioral scientists who are working in organizations you know I mean, junior behavioral scientists i'm thinking of like you know those uh, those 1950s films with like johnny good job you're a junior social scientist <laughs> <laughs> 19. Oh my God. We're going back. We're, you're going back to the Kurt Lewin era of oh, the 1940s. And we brought, she brought right. up Kurt Lewin, who again is she one did. of my favorite uh, uh, researchers in this area back before it was behavioral science and it was social uh, psychology. Actually, I don't even know if it was social psychology at the time. Uh, but he is, again, some of the work that Kurt Lewin has done. If, if our listeners have not researched him, just Google yeah. him. Uh, did a lot, and he died way too young. He died when he was 56 or so, yeah. uh, had emigrated over from, from Germany because of the war and various different pieces, and, and ended up, you know, his name is Kurt, and it's spelled the right way, K-U-R-T. <laughs> and he ended his career. He was at the University of Iowa. Go Hawkeyes. Uh, it was so, yeah. he's uh, near and dear to my heart. After being at Stanford, I think, for a while. Which, which is, okay, which, okay. which then shows he moved to Iowa, where it's really cool. No, but he had a, a, a change methodology that he talked about, which was this element of, of thinking about change in this, we, 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 are, we have to unfreeze our habits and behaviors and actions, uh, and then the change can happen, and then we need to freeze the new change into place. So it's this unfreeze, change, freeze model, and it's just a, it's a very simplified model, but if you think about it from a behavior change perspective and all of the additional work that, uh, and research that we know now, mm -hmm. it still applies. We have our habits, we have our routines, we have our status quo. We have to break that. We have to unfreeze ourselves from those habits and routines and status quo components that we get ourselves stuck into. We then have to change and then we have to reformulate that. So. But th and he, and so this is a precursor 
to B.J. Fogg's work or James Clear or uh, I mean I mean we're the, Charles the, Dunhag, you know all of yeah, those. those. These, we're, they're standing on the shoulders of a guy who pioneered some really really great work. And yeah. you think about that, you know, he was doing this work in the in the 30s and 40s, and and if he would have been around another 15, 20 years, the 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 difference oh, that that could yeah. have made it was amazing. Yeah. And I, then. I, I, he, Oh, oh, go ahead. Well, I I just have to say that his formula, Lewis Lewin's equation. That's where I was going. Oh, okay, you go. Behavior is a function of the person in the environment. Oh yes. So context matters. Snap! <laughs> I love it. And I love that it's actually a mathematical equation that he has. You know, it's a simple one. But it, if we think about this from the perspective of, so behavior is driven by the person which was a big component. Is it personal? And this was back in the day of, of Skinner and various right. different things where right. the person was taken out. It was all about just, reinforcement just and, yeah. just and a component. little stimulus. Yep, and, and stimulus and, yeah. and environment and behavior and, uh, you know, reinforcement. I said again and again, I'm reinforcing that component. <laughs> but as we think about that, bringing that person into it, bringing that person's personality, yeah. their history, their mindset, uh, and tying that in with the environment and, and the world that they live in. Fantastic. It is. It's fantastic. Yes. Stuff. Yeah. Okay. All right. What else? Um, how about thinking in probabilities? We don't, we, why do we talk about the same things because over and over again? Because it keeps coming up. That's so great. Right. It, it, and again, this is the, so, Okay, it does, right? It comes up a lot in our podcast with our podcast guests. The great thing is, this is a big problem. This is a big problem. Our 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 black and white thinking in the world today gets in our way. It's problematic. It's troublesome. And if we get away from the political sphere, let's just leave that behind. And we think if if we go to to work, and Linnea used this great example about how supply chains are so highly um, probabilistic. Like, yes. so, like you can you can actually do the statistics on supply chains because you can map out every step of the way. Do you know uh, 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 you know path A, path B? You can identify those and assign probabilities to those things. But we don't, we don't, because well, for one thing, it's hard. It takes some some intellectual rigor, right? And most people are not trained as statisticians. No, and even. Our brains are lazy. I, I will. I will make that statement. Check. Got it. <laughs> we. Our, our brains are designed. They take up the most. They consume the most energy of any component of our body for the the actual amount of weight that they are. You know, it's what three percent of our overall body consumes about twenty percent of our energy. So our brains have been evolving in order to, you know limit the amount of computational components that they conserve have to do. energy conserve as much energy yeah. as possible that's a good thing right. that is a good thing but it's it fabulous. lends itself into some of the biases and some of these issues that we put that we, we fall into one of them is this probabilistic thinking because it is as you said hard it takes up a lot of cognitive resources those cognitive resources then uh, you know are 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 things that bring up that energy. And so we do everything we can just to kind of simplify those. And we simplify them in ways that aren't always correct. And we go to the, the 100% or we go to the zero. We go to that black and the white. It's harder to keep that 
component in our brain of thinking, is this a 70%, an 80%? Right. It's hard. 68%. But the more that we can do that, the better it lends itself to how we make decisions throughout our life. Annie Duke talked about it. You know, Linnea talks about it. Uh, we've had multiple other guests talk about this. Yeah. So I think from our, for our listeners, it's how do we go about, so, so how do we go about in, in getting ourselves to think more like this, to think more probabilistically? I think part of it is that we need to decide, we have to have some rules in our lives about when we actually need to apply more deliberative thinking. Right, that when we need to engage that system too, we need we need to have some kind of guideline that says, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Uh, this situation that we're in right now, we actually need to stop and slow down a little bit and think more deliberately about it, mm. um, and not just rely on those heuristics right. uh, and and the, these rules of thumb that we have to snap through through decisions, and and especially at work. Especially in the business world. Well, even in our personal lives. I mean, I think it, it this applies across It certainly work. does. It certainly it, does. This is really work and life, right? Which is what we oh, that's what so this amazing. podcast is all about is applying these principles to work and life. You're just a guru to this morning, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> My brain is still really fuzzy from lack of sleep. The the tea has not hit in yet. I don't know. Too many nine-year-olds, huh? Yeah, birthday party. Uh, Nine-year-old birthday party yesterday. You know, ten screaming kids and a magician. Okay. Um, what else? What else? Any, any, anything else? Because I, I, I wanted to talk about music. If, of if course you want to talk about music. We always end with music. And Man. I'm actually, you know, I... Are I, you getting I, to like it? Like is a little hard. <laughs> I will tell you, though, that I'm... I'm I'm feeling more comfortable. Come on, man. We're 35 episodes into this. I am more comfortable (laughs) with talking about music at the end. It's, it's, we have, we have frozen my new behavior in that this is an expectation. Oh. And so my, my, my start was this is all weird. And then I had to change. And now I'm starting to freeze into this new status quo. How about that? I love bringing it. Lewin into this whole thing. <laughs> okay, kudos for that. Okay, well, well, well done. All right, so music. What do you want to talk about? Well, Linnea talked about. Uh, so uh, we big, loud, and clear. Like her experience in mu- in in music is through movement, right? Yes. Dance, improv, things like that. Yeah. She's all about movement. But she did mention Billy Joel's "The Longest Time." The longest time, which is such a delightful tune. It you know, is this this throwback to fifties bebop, and uh, it, it's such a great it's a great tune. But while we're on this idea of Billy Joel, what is your favorite Billy Joel song? All right, I'm gonna be really bad. And you don't have to have just one. You can you can have you can have six favorites. That's okay. Well, I do. But, I mean, Billy Joel's a great great artist. Love yeah. Billy Joel's work. Um, but I'm gonna go with like. The, the one I think probably many, many people would pick, which is Piano Man. It's a great song. You know, I, I, it's just so, it works on so many different levels. I remember, and again, this is, you know, what that was done in the 70s. You know, I'm a child of the late 70s, 80s. And so I remember listening to that in high school. Just over and over. Had the album. You remember what those were? You know, those things? Wasn't it those big vinyl discs? Yeah, and you put them on and they were scratchy and everything else. But I remember listening to Piano Man over and over and over again. And, and, you know, just the the lyrics of it. They, you know, 
powerful and, and so simple, and yet you understood the people in that story. I mean, it was a story. It's a narrative. Yeah, right. I mean, you you could see what that bar looks like where he's playing. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, you and and I think he's sometimes Billy Joel can just land like Shakespeare. You know, in in his ability to take very complex ideas and boil them down to a very small number of words. So, it's almost like a statistics book that gets <laughs> waxed poetically on by Linnea. I, oh, and yeah. I'm bringing this back because I, I think there is there's, no, there's no, an interesting you, component about how language and how language is used. And, and we've talked about this with music multiple times, right? Yeah, yeah. In, in the fact of how that language in music and being able to quickly or eloquently convey a impression, an emotion, paint a picture of a scene yeah. is really vital. And I think what Linnea really was loving about that statistics book, and I think we got the name wrong in the intro, but you know, regardless of what that the the book's actual name is, I can't remember it. It was poetic. I mean, and she really read it as poetry, and being able to ascribe that that language to conveying a thought. And we've talked about this, like James Clear has his new book out, Atomic Habits. Habits. Um, it's a good book, but what I love about it is the language that he uses yeah. and how he writes. Written he writes really well. yeah. in a way that just brings in analogies and conveys and creates this, this visual image in your head. And those are, are some, I think, things that beyond just the content, it's how it's written and the words that are used, and we went way off track of Billy Joel. <laughs> That's, you, are you suggesting there might have been a rabbit hole there? I I don't know. Do we do? What, I what? think there might have been a rabbit hole there. I think that that's a good thing. So yeah. Billy Joel and you, Rosalinda's eyes. Okay, that's is that a that is a a song. I am not sure if I could actually. Start humming the tune if I was to actually well, go. Uh, I'll put a link to it in our in our show notes. But okay. I gotta say that uh, yes, Billy Joel could could serve up the pop music, mm -hmm. the uh, just the the fun, the rock and roll, the you know oh, all the, girl. yeah yeah all that <laughs> sugar you know that just goes to your brain and just you know blasts dopamine through your head is just great. <laughs> but but he was this this he was an artist around narrative he is he's still alive <laughs> an artist that excels at narrative and rosalinda's eyes is a story of a not so successful musician who uh, who plays in spanish harlem and is in love with this this woman named rosalinda and they have kind of they have a good relationship but it's not like the the best thing that you've ever experienced and he's not the best musician ever in this story and and to convey that, that middling ground is so wonderful, right? But he, uh, even with all that sort of middling in terms of the quality of the relationship, he has this tremendous adoration for her, and it's Rosalinda's eyes. 
you know, that, that he is just so fond of. And I love that. I love, I love this idea that uh, it doesn't have to be the best. You know, so many, again, talk about easy uh-huh. versus, you know, the, the automatic versus the deliberative. The automatic, the easy lyric is, this was the best night ever. Right. This was the greatest thing that ever happened to me. You are the you are the love of my life, you know. That, easy. That's that's the easy story to tell. The the deliberative, the more difficult story to tell is you know what? I'm just an okay musician. And you know what? We have a a little bit of a rocky relationship, but every time I think of you, I think of your eyes, and that's amazing to me. That I think is a complex story to tell, and he does it Billy Joel does it beautifully with Rosalinda's eyes. So I think we're probably the only podcast in this entire world that we are can, the only that, podcast in the entire <laughs> no, no, world. No, no, oh no, there's no, more. There's, okay. there's a lot more out <laughs> okay. there. We are the only podcast in the entire world that can talk about Billy Joel music and bring dopamine into the conversation about how Billy Joel's lyrics release this little sugar cube of dopamine or whatever you the words you used. It's it's wonderful. This is why I like the music talk. I think this is this is why I have frozen back into this new acceptance of our talk of music because we're bringing in this element of you know and then it's the automatic versus the you know the, the system 1 versus yeah. system 2 yeah. in in thinking about music. I've totally adopted Caroline's web web's uh, approach on that. I just love automatic and deliberative. I think it's very great too. Yeah. So all right, any any else other rabbit holes we want to go down? No, but I you know, I want to reiterate um uh, Kurt, I think we were actually already talked about this, but we're now being listened to in eighty-five, more than eighty-five countries. I I, I want to uh, just thank everybody. Yeah. We we actually were recently um, named one of the top five behavioral science podcasts by Feedspot. Yeah, which was cool. a fantastic. Uh, uh, accolade for us it made us both smile from ear to ear although we okay. do that quite often when we do this podcast but that's a special thanks to all of the wonderful guests that we have and all of our wonderful listeners and so thank you guests anybody who has ever appeared on the show uh, and then for everybody who listens to us thank you we really do appreciate it actually go out to Feedspot they got a lot of cool stuff and you can find our they top do. five listing yeah. um, they have some other top five top ten listings just, out there too just if don't listen inter- to the other four <laughs> the other four are good. No, they are. We, we listen are to them anyway. Yes. That's so right. anyway, with that, um, please, if you like us, you know, give us a good rating. It helps in getting maybe maybe even getting other top five or ten recommendations. That's right. And so we appreciate that very much. Thank you.